Welcome back to For Fintech's Sake. I'm Zach Anderson Pettit, U.S. Content Director at Money 2020 as of today, and also, as you know me, your host of For Fintech's Sake. My guest today is Dan Kimmerling, founder and managing partner at Desians, a fintech venture capital fund, especially focused on early stage. We sat down in Vegas in Money 2020 in the Media Lounge. There was some hustle, some bustle, and generally a lot going on. So the quality of the audio isn't 100% at points. We cut the really rough parts, but kept everything we could because it was such a good conversation. We covered a lot of ground and had fun along the way. Of course, Lindsay Davis, head of markets at Atomic, joins in her usual co-host capacity. We shared one microphone, so excuse the delay and a little bit of the, the distance talking between the two of us as we were pushing that back and forth. This week's episode of For Thin Tech's Sake is sponsored by LSBX. LSBX is Lincoln Savings Bank FinTech-focused division. I never thought I'd be reading ads on For Fintech's Sake because honestly, I didn't know if anyone would ever listen. But as you all have shown me, there's something here. And if you've been listening since the early days, you know I started this craziness as a way to learn and talk to important people that would never give me the time of day and hopefully be able to share that out with you all. After deciding I was open to it, I made it very clear that I would only associate for fintech's sake with companies that are supporting founders and doing a net good, net positive for the world. LSBX is exactly that. They were supporting founders and doing the sponsor bank thing since 2014. So yes, before it was cool. And even before fintech was cool. If you're a startup or growth stage company looking to find direct banking relationships for deposits, debit card issuance, or access to banking rails through a great partner, go to lsbx.com. Lincoln Savings Bank is a member FDIC. That's another reason to partner with them. And without further ado, enjoy our conversation with Dan at Desians. Well, pretty much everything involving my life is very nerdy. Uh, Same. Grew up in New Jersey. Okay. Uh, I went to the University of Chicago for college and graduate school. After that, I moved to Silicon Valley and was very early at TechCrunch and helped them build their business. Uh, what did you study in school? studied a couple different things. Probably the most interesting and useful thing I studied is I studied the history and philosophy of science, which I think is in some ways like the art of venture capital is to try and understand what are the social, economic, political, cultural trends and the implications of technological innovations on people. Mm-hmm. Um, at least the way I do venture capital, there, there are other ways that other people do it. But yeah. the philosopher I, king way is more fun, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like being able to being able to pontificate about it is a lot more fun than just like full on Patagonia vest, you know, well, rip I think, it and rip it kind of vibe. Well I think part of the problem with venture capitalists is venture capitalists have tried to like argue that they have the gift of prophecy and foresight. <laughs> and I don't know about you, Zach, but I don't know anybody who's got the gift of prophecy or foresight. Well, I mean, you told me at the beginning of this you invested in SpaceX, so I just thought I, I just thought investing in like I'm a space nerd, so yeah. I thought like investing in space shit was cool. It, it's worked out for me, but really, <laughs> I invested in it because it was like they're putting shit into space. How awesome was that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, when TechCrunch sold, I kind of fell down the fintech rabbit hole, and uh, eventually ended up starting this company called Standard Treasury which was the first banking as a service company. 
and truth be told, we were just too early. Yeah. We ended up uh, uh, selling that in a pretty successful tra- transaction to Silicon Valley Bank. Okay. And then I uh, kind of led digital things at Silicon Valley Bank for a number of years. Was your thesis on that first company similar to like a lot of the shit that you're seeing on stage or like seeing this maybe overfunding of banking as a service right now in some cases? Like, I'm not sure if banking as a service is being overfunded or underfunded or just right funded. Yeah. Um, I would say that the belief that developers would have to be treated as a first-class customer for financial institutions was accurate and I think continues to be, um, I don't know, developers have to be treated as a first-class customer segment for financial institutions, for sure. I think, um, and, you know, in full disclosure, I'm one of the major investors in Treasury Prime, and I sit on the board of Treasury Prime. I think a lot of the work that I did at at, uh, Standard Treasury and at Silicon Valley Bank, Jim and Chris, the co-founders of Standard Treasury, um, have picked up that ball and run with it in ways that I had never foreseen, and they've just, they're, they're doing an incredible job. Was the name an homage to your company? There is a relationship. And there's also a relationship between modern. Standard Treasury and Modern Treasury. Yeah. Um, and I think it's very cool. Uh, Dimitri uh, from Modern Treasury is also great. I don't know if you've had him on the show, but Not he's yet, awesome. But he's had a couple of PR people reach out. Well, he probably has no idea that they've reached out, but some <laughs> PR people have reached out and asked to have him on the show and definitely will. What do you think you got wrong in being early for that initial banking as a service thesis? And was it because perhaps it was that banks themselves don't invest in the talent to integrate services from the engineer's point of view, attracting talent for a bank for competing with Google and Facebook in that period of time is very hard? I think what we got wrong was uh, a core thesis of standard treasury was if we enabled banks to treat developers like first class customers, they would do so. Mm. And I Some think first principles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that turned out to be inaccurate. Mm. What, were the, what was the product at that point? Like, was it card issuance? What was the So we, we enabled, um, we had a set of technologies where a bank could allow a developer to open a bank account, let you know, full KYC, yeah. move money in and out, um, eventually issue a, a, a piece of plastic against it. Yeah. Um, Who were your bank partners at that point? So, uh, you know, when we ultimately sold Silicon Valley Bank, was our biggest oh, bank partner. Okay. Cool. And so that's that, interesting. They're not much in sponsor. Do they? Are they in sponsor banking at all now? Certainly the debt. Well, good point. Good point. I think, um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank has had a number of banking as a service um, programs over the years. I think the most salient was the relationship. Uh, with Stripe and Stripe Atlas, that the Stripe Atlas bank account was at least at the time I was there, a Silicon Valley Bank bank account. Yeah, I would say I think where Silicon Valley Bank really excels is on customer service. Um, um, And I think, uh, you know, Greg Becker, the CEO there, um, really recognizes that that is where they compete and win. And a lot of the work that they do is around making sure that that value proposition remains 
consistent regardless of what client segment, what geography, yeah. et cetera. Did you have a single, like was the, the thesis a single bank partner like per product or was like no. kind of a suite of bank partners? So that, you know, I think some of the banking as a service companies today um, work with many different banks, you know, but the developer interacts with, you know, for example, the developer goes to the treasuryprime.com and interacts right. with Treasury Prime APIs. And behind that, there are a number of different banks. Right. The standard treasury model was you would go to api.siliconvalleybank.com ah. and that we would power that entire developer experience. Gotcha. Okay. So that's all like, it kind of like smells a little bit like what Q2 is today, sort of. Not really, but kind of. That's interesting. It's there interesting was some, the direction, some directional, um, you know, directionally somewhere. Yeah, it's like some over, a little bit over. Developer portals. Yeah. You're saying you're yeah. developer first company, yeah. but you can't access the yeah. API documents. You can't get up and running. <laughs> don't, don't speak to Right, developers. you can't rotate your keys without getting on the phone with somebody, that kind of thing. Who doesn't sure. actually know what an API key is. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, love you, love you Q2 story. team. <laughs> love you Q2 team. You're doing great stuff. Um, Okay, so after after that, Standard Treasury, what, what was the next step in life? Well, so we sold Standard Treasury to Silicon Valley Bank in August of 2015. Oh, and then you were there for a while. Yeah, we I was there for uh, over a little over two years, and we uh, that was a good you know great experience what working with the Silicon about? Valley do, Bank do team. Tell. I, I like think there's... that's when I met Lindsay when I was oh, at Silicon okay, Valley okay. Bank. I was like, non compete there's... to expire. Gosh, okay. that's my thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that, the that, eye contact you two made, listeners, was strong as soon as we got to that point i was like something's here well i i think one of the things that i was really focused on at silicon valley bank was expanding our brand reach within the fintech community yeah um so i spent a lot of time on the road you at got there 20, you did that i mean between 2015 and 2017 the brand definitely expanded the notoriety definitely shifted and for and sure fintech had expanded too. yeah well it's a perfect storm in a lot of ways good, right like good timing and and yeah um but still, you have to get on the plane and do the work. That's for sure. And like, my wife uh, would describe me as sort of like the the brand ambassador, you know, amongst uh, fintech, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank's brand ambassador yeah. to the fintech community. Yeah. That was one of the things I was focused on when I was there. There's something to be said for that. Like when I was, we haven't t spent a ton of time together, but before I was at Bond, I was at a company called MBKC. Of, of course. Yeah. yeah. Sponsor bank. Um, and I was kind of, to some degree, at least that person, like there was a big team and the executive team's awesome, but I definitely had like the go out there and talk to people. You like, there's a lot of really cool sponsor banks out there that you don't have like a person that you associate with that bank, which maybe is good. Maybe it's bad. Uh, I'll give it another example would be Rabobank. Rabobank, the big bank from the Netherlands is organized functionally around the needs of agricultural customers. Yeah. And they do a bunch of fintech stuff too, don't they? They're Mostly like, related to agriculture. Ag, fintech, thanks, but ag tech. Uh, just the, you know, I left Silicon Valley Bank in 2017, uh, August of 2017 to start Desians. Yeah. So bring us up to today. What was the, what was the thesis behind Desians? What has the experience been like raising fund one, getting into fund two? Catch us, catch us up to today. Yeah. I mean, I think the core thesis was and continues to be the needs of early stage fintechs are pretty different than the needs of early stage co companies and other verticals like traditional consumer internet, yeah. enterprise software, et cetera. And so there's an opportunity to create a best in class firm that supports weird founders trying to create 
fascinating things in and around financial yeah. services. And so uh, started that in 2017, went live with our first fund in 2018, deployed that until... How big was the first one? About $20 million. Yeah. And then uh, have been deploying fund two uh, recently. And it's been a lot of work, yeah, for sure. A lot, a lot of work. I, um, especially pre-COVID, I was in... I was on the road all the time. I mean, I was in New York. There was one period where I was in New York 10 times in eight weeks. I was hoping in San Francisco. Wait, how do you, you, you came and left in the same week multiple times? His wife. Yeah, my wife, my wife is just an incredible. Oh my God, for sure. Without, you know, I, I think, um, to a lot of people who are not in venture capital, it looks like what we do a lot is work with entrepreneurs, but there's an, really three jobs in venture capital. There's like finding and partnering with incredible entrepreneurs. There's running a micro private equity fund, yeah. which includes working with your accountants, lawyers, auditors. Um, most venture funds uh, have a, are exempt from SEC oversight because we're what's called an exempt reporting advisor, but you still have to do all these filings in order to keep your exemption, et cetera, yeah. working with our, you know, banks, et cetera. I don't think I know about it. Is that true of a fund at any size? Like you can be a multi-billion dollar fund and that's still true? Or is there like a ceiling? So acknowledging that I'm not a securities lawyer. Sure, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. All, of, all of the caveats, fraud. listeners, right. this is not investment advice. Yeah, uh, yeah we are but not that's responsible. actually hitting on what the problem is because some are actually registered. The short version for your listeners is Dessians can only invest 80 per, uh, we have to we cannot invest more uh, more than 19.9% of our dollars in uh, anything that is not like investing in startups. Gotcha. Okay. So if you like randomly bought 21% of Bitcoin or like 20% 21% of your fund in Bitcoin right. you would be hypothetically violating the exemption and we would be required to register is there a fiduciary requirement with both of these I there mean, obviously is. there is with an there RIA, is but there is the uh, Dessians uh, we are fiduciaries for our clients not all venture programs are um, Interesting. some venture programs uh, ask the LPs to waive the fiduciary duty I, I would never do that at Dessians but there is that, are is that just a liability thing like their lawyers talked them into it or something I think it's a lot of people, it definitely reduces the liability to the GP, yeah. to the, the person running the firm, right. for sure. I think a lot of, a lot of uh, investors just don't read the docs, yeah. and they waive the GP's fiduciary requirement. Yeah. And then the third part of what your job is. Oh, sorry. So, and then there's partnering with limited partners, which yeah. is a big part of the game, um, and which is not very transparent. Um, and we're very lucky that we have incredible limited partners, but uh, it took a number of years of very dedicated work to uh, to find an audience for our product amongst the limited partner okay. community. And you probably knew a lot of them beforehand. It probably wasn't like your first time meeting a number of them, I would guess, yeah, well, building relationships for years. So there's some estimate where course it's hard to know but the estimate is something on the order of 90 percent of venture funds never get to a first close 90 percent of venture funds never get to a first close yeah i guess that makes sense uh you know definitely a lot of the people who were in our fund one came in through relationships that i had been building you know going back really since 
2006, maybe. But uh, it is definitely a part of the venture business, which is not super talked about and not super transparent. And another major part of it is most people who are in the venture business did not actually start their own firms. Hmm. Most people who are in the venture business work at firms that were started. So like the process of going from zero to one in venture is itself a pretty small ecosystem. Like what's the geographic distribution of your LPs right now? And like, what is it like to work with different family offices across the US? Because I know a lot in Kansas City, but it's hard to talk to them about VC quite often. What I would say is that, I mean, I would say the geographic distribution of our LP base is largely in North America. Uh, We have a couple great LPs in Europe. Um, We have one really good LP in in Israel, and we have a couple in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Mm -hmm. Um, One LP in Japan, maybe two LPs in Japan now that I think about it. Um, So we're talking about a relationship that is at least 10 years. Yeah, longer than the average marriage in the U.S. And so you have to go into it with really a belief that there's fundamental align. We've had some situations where we've had to unwind LP relationships um, and it's not fun. And uh, although we pay our lawyers nicely for that, I don't think it's what they would like to do with their time either. Yeah, yeah. I would say, how has your background in? Sorry, I should move the mic I, I sometimes. I feel you like wanting to ask something, and I want no, to. No, I'm just, push. I'm just taking it all in. I think I like the philosophical style conversation, but I would like to dig deeper into the types of companies you've invested in, believing in chipper cash in Africa, way ahead of most people, finding entrepreneurs and your style of investing, yeah. and that philosophy and like that stemmed from your education. Thinking about it, I do think it is really rare. To, I've never thought about it in the way that you phrased it, going from zero to one. From I was at SVB, I was an entrepreneur, then I'm just going to go invest. Most people think in the apprenticeship thing. I mean, truth be told, I was just fucking stupid. I I just like I was like, well, other people I know are doing it, and they're doing it nicely. I could go do it and do it nicely. Honestly, I didn't know how hard it would be. It, it's been way harder than I thought. Very lucky that I can do it and very remunerative, of course. But um, to the people out there who are thinking about going into venture, I would encourage them to apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, Don't do it this way. I, I, I'm not sure I would always advocate for this path. Um, uh, you know, I think, uh, I, I think there are a couple important things. First is, I've been very lucky to have incredible deal flow from when we started Destinies, and that led me to, so then the question is like, what is a, what do we want Destinies to be? And then how do we take that deal flow, run, like develop a set of filters or criteria, and then use those filters and criteria to help us achieve our goals. I think that's like one way to think about it. So we knew from when we started Destians that we wanted to be a really high performance fund. And so that means we always have to be reaching for things which look insane. Well, the way that you most consistently deliver exceptional returns is to have a highly concentrated portfolio 
a small number of deals in each fund, and you have a lot of ownership in each company. So that uh, that kind of led us to the initial framework of Decians, where in each fund we do a certain number of deals. In fund one, we only did nine deals. Wow. And we own a lot of each company, and we're extremely involved with each company. How, how rare is that? I, I'm so used to this whole like over portfolioization kind of thing. And maybe I'm, I'm qualifying things again and saying over and under, but it seems to me like the average $20 million fund is going to write a ton of $100,000, $200,000 checks. I don't think those rare. people will ever make money. Spray and pray. Interesting. I, I mean, I think the thing is, if you look at the statistical models, um, a highly diversified portfolio will help you find unicorns, but it will not help you actually deliver exceptional performance because you won't own enough of your big winners. The flip side is at Destians, we own so much that if we even have a couple outcomes in the hundreds of millions of dollars, we'll have a very nice performing fund. And if we can find some billion dollar, $10 billion, even knock on wood, uh, $100 billion outcomes will have truly exceptional performance. But it is, when I talk to LPs, it is the number one thing they get concerned about, our, concentra- our highly concentrated approach. It, it is, it's weirdly, you, hearing, now I'm violating my own rule, hearing you explain this, it makes a lot of sense, but it definitely struck me as counterintuitive when you started to explain it. But I think the other thing about it is we want to own a lot of each company we want to be highly concentrated, highly engaged. But then we also have certain beliefs. Businesses have to have increasing returns to scale. So as they get bigger, they have to get better. And like traditionally, you would call that like network effects. You would call that virality. You would call that economies of scope or economies of scale. They're like, um, but they have to get better the bigger they are. And unfortunately, we see a lot of businesses that are very linear in the sense that they are just as good as they are on day 100 as they are on day one. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's not what we get very excited about. I think the second thing is the businesses have to have ever-deepening moats. As they get bigger, they have to get harder to kill. Because as you get bigger, they're, as you get bigger, the target on your back is bigger every day. Yeah. So there has to be something about the business model that makes it fundamentally more defensible as it gets larger. The third thing we really look for are businesses that are winner-take-all or winner-take-most. Fundamentally, we need to invest in businesses that are very capital-efficient. And if an industry is winner-take-all or winner-take-most, then what we really need to do is catalyze that kind of running-the-table phenomena Mm -hmm. so that we can create a lot of enterprise value without pouring tons and tons of capital into it. And then I think the last thing is they just have to be in very large markets. That what in VC parlance, the total addressable market size has to be material. Mm-hmm. So really, at the end of the day, with Decians, if we own a lot of each company and if one or more companies, uh, you know, uh, is a winner-take-all business with deep moats in a massive market, we'll return lots of capital to our limited partners and honor the trust they place in us and have an impact yeah for sure yeah i mean on the impact thing unless you have a question i'm stealing this puppy back 
um, for a second at least. So kind of listening to you talk, I'm especially curious about Africa and especially curious about like the thesis around Chipper, which obviously has worked out quite well. Or, or do they go by Chipper or Chipper Cash officially? Like Chip, if, Chipper Cash. Chipper Cash. Okay. I, There's I, actually I, another fintech called Chipper. Yeah. Um, in the, away the debt. The yeah, exactly. Loan, in the yeah, student loan space. Are, I was an investor in Chipper in my previous life. Um, not Chipper Cash. Yours has worked out a little bit better. I love you, Tony. It's still going. Um, so Africa specifically, I had somebody on the podcast about, I think the episode probably came out about a month ago. Uh, and he was in the Western Union Techstars program. It's a company called Rise. And it was basically... Can't remember. Can you spell the rise? Uh, it was Y and I and Z. There, there are a couple. There are a couple of rises out there. Yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised. It's the as soon as you get into finance, you you're like, oh, this would be a cool name for a thing. Um, Google it. Anyway, so they they were basically giving access to USD and to uh, eventually to US equities, and pretty much just because of living living in a hyperinflationary state, any access to something that's slightly less inflationary is great. So he has just the most insane fucking growth numbers that I've ever, ever seen a consumer facing startup have. Um, so I guess the question is, like, do, does that seem to be pervasive in what you're seeing in Africa? Just hyper, hyper, hyper growth. And secondly, how much time do you have to spend there to actually understand and have conviction around an investment? Yeah. So. What I can say is that the growth rates of emerging markets fintech in yeah. general yeah, are sure. out of control. That's fair. It's exponential. That's a, You're going yeah. from zero, like paper-based processes yeah. and cash-heavy economies yeah. to cloud-based yeah. services that are built outside of financial services yeah. and institutions. But even Africa still, maybe it's just because it's like a little sexier at this point or something, but like African fintech to me still feels like it, it's a feeling and there's no data behind it. In my head, at least, it feels like it's growing faster in LATAM. It feels like it's like... Africa's less talked about because is that why it's just because I'm not hearing about it as much and I it gets me going. I think there's definitely um, the successes of Africa are still relatively early in their germination cycle, and I think we will talk about them um, with in hindsight with. Um, Oh yeah, a lot of admiration. Obvious. Yeah, a yeah. lot of admiration. Twenty next year, there's going to be a whole African track. Just, <laughs> I mean, there, there's a Latam track. Yeah. And there's a Latam lend it. Like these are these no, are real I, markets. Yeah, I mean, I laugh at the end of it, but it, yeah, yeah. it should well, be a thing. I, I think it's a little bit hard for people in the United States to fully internalize how geographically big Africa is, yeah. and how large it is from a populist perspective, and how heterogeneous it is i mean um just growing up in schools in new jersey we were not taught about how diverse culturally rich nuanced uh africa was um i'll be the first like i I didn't learn about that till i was an adult we barely know american history dude for sure, for sure. <laughs> and we also don't teach it all in schools. Yeah, like, for sure. And what, we, and what we do teach is only halfway correct, I often find in retrospect. But yeah, no, I don't I don't expect the U.S. school system to put us in a good position for any of these conversations. And you look but. at a country like Nigeria, Nigeria's population will be larger than that of the United States within my lifetime. That was and one I'm of 35. the stats you brought up, and it blew my mind. Um, and the birth so, rate and the repopulation rate. And, and also the relative youth. I think yeah, in other parts the of the age. 
right? Yeah. In other parts of the world, we have rapidly aging yeah. um, populaces. Yeah. Um, and a negative, uh, negative repopulation rate. Um, Lindsay knows I'm very close with Kai Stitchcomb and Carl McDonald from Truly Financial, which is one of my investments. And that's a company that's really working on the kind of the graying population. Whereas I look at Chipper and what we're doing in our seven African markets, we're really helping young people. We're helping that we're really empowering them economically. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's cool to be able to be a true capitalist, but actually make the world, you know, a little bit better of a place at the end of the day. Yeah. In, in the Jewish faith, there's this idea of Tokiolam, which you would, translate to something like um you want to leave the earth a better place than you came into it yeah i think that's a lot of what we think about is like how do we invest in companies that solve real problems for real people yeah i love that and i think that's a based on what time it is and yeah we should we should wrap it up there. I'm that's a, my meeting. That's a good, perfect note. I know that well, no one else is. well we haven't we have another one at, or i have another one at two and you're welcome to hang out if you want um, but thank we, you, Dan. And yeah, we like to end these things. With, is there anything that yeah, you'd like to put that's out what I was in the say. universe, yeah. especially having been through three days now, money 2020? Yeah. Or, you know, t types of companies, stages of companies Fun to, that you're, you're looking to. Yeah. Commercial. Do a Dan commercial. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, we we're, we don't, we cannot partner with that many companies. Yeah. In a busy year, we partner with four or five companies. So I think one, we always feel very blessed to partner with those that we do. Second, we acknowledge that we're deeply imperfect and there will be many great companies. And we think that the best thing is that financial services leads to a more just, equitable, verdant and prosperous world. Um, and you're like, I'll, I'll just give one example. Right now, we're spending a lot of energy on like, how can fintech or financial services, inclusive of banking and insurance, um, push uh, forward a question of sustainability? Mm -hmm. And how, um, you know, we were talking about Rabobank, how can financial services take a more um, bold approach related to the future of agriculture? These kinds of things. Um, Lindsay over here is talking about is excited I about heart e ESG, ESG sticker on her iPad. <laughs> I think it's more. If anyone doesn't know Lindsay, just go find her iPad and you'll know her by the stickers. But I think ultimately, what works for my colleague Ishan and I is to find companies that really solve problems for real people, mm -hmm. and that means we often invest in things which are out of favor, and mm -hmm. that's okay because we have the confidence of our convictions and we're lucky to be able to have that confidence because we have capital partners that uh, really believe in what we do. Cheers, man. That's awesome. Well, I will link to you on Twitter, LinkedIn, website, all that kind of stuff in the show notes. Thank you for the time, my friend. This has been a blast to get to Thanks, know you. Zach. Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. Always good to see you, Dan. Great to best. see you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Dan Kimmerling at Desians. Jump into the show, mo show notes to learn more about Dan. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. 
And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and shoot me an email with what you want to see at Money 2020 next year. And thanks again to LSBX for the sponsorship.